Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Steven Pinker about measuring human happiness. It's better to be healthy than to be sick. It's better to be literate than to be ignorant. Okay, let's measure these things over time. Have they increased since the Enlightenment? And the answer is in every case they have. Here's Debbie Millman. These days, it's easy to feel a sense of doom. Various nuclear buttons, climate change, creeping authoritarianism here and abroad, you name it. It's scary. But there's someone who sees hope for the future. In his new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, author Steven Pinker urges us to step back from the headlines and see the bigger picture. Health, prosperity, safety, and happiness are actually on the rise. Steven Pinker is an experimental psychologist with a broad range of interests, visual cognition, psycholinguistics, and social relations. In an era of religious and political polarization, Pinker argues we need science, reason, and humanism now more than ever. Steven Pinker, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Stephen, I understand that the Hardy Boys books were some of your favorite books growing up. What about them did you enjoy most? Oh, they were fabulous whodunits. They had uh, protagonists who were a bit older than I was as a boy, and uh, so enough to both uh, identify with them and to look up to them. And they were very well written and uh, had uh, intriguing plot lines, yeah. I have a 10-year-old nephew, and so he's beginning to read those books now. And so he had left one in um, my bedroom when I went to visit recently. And I couldn't believe how much they actually reflected so much about basic human behavior. Did you feel that when you were reading them growing up? <laughs> yeah. I hadn't thought of it at the time. But but yeah, because they, they applauded human ingenuity, right. uh, figuring out who did it from clues with dark human motives. And, the, and a real interest in the way people say things. Yes, that's right. And like <laughs> film noir, which were the, yes. kind of the adult version, yes. uh, they did show some of the darker impulses in human nature, which has been a, a lifelong interest. 
You've stated that you grew up in Montreal as part of the Jewish minority within the English-speaking minority within the French-speaking minority in Canada. And so I'm wondering, how did you develop any kind of self-esteem in all of those minorities? <laughs> well, uh, I guess being the oldest son in a Jewish family uh, gives you a bit of a tailwind in life, perhaps. Uh, and uh, you know, growing up in a pretty comfortable baby boom post-war suburban milieu is uh, is not one of the more challenging environments to grow up in. So I was, I've, I was very fortunate. Uh, I was made to feel fortunate because my parents and grandparents' generation lived through the Depression, through the Second World War. Um, many of the parents of my friends were Holocaust survivors and uh, refugees from the 1956 Hungarian Revolution. So I was made to feel that I was being brought up in a privileged time and place. I didn't have to live through the Depression or the war. And this was impressed on me as a child how fortunate I was. And I actually thought that I was living through boring times in which nothing historic happened or would happen. Now I realize I was living through incredible times, the nuclear arms race, the eventually the Cold War and then the collapse of the Soviet Empire, the whole revolution in women's rights, which no one anticipated until it started to happen, the revolution in, in gay rights, the dawn of the mini computer, the microcomputer, then the internet, all these happened during my lifetime. So my grandparents and parents thought that interesting historic stuff happened and I was just going to live in a kind of boring suburban wasteland. Turned out not to be true. We've lived through remarkable times. I read that you visualized your parents looking at a map and saying, damn, what's the closest that we can get to New York? Oh, there's this cold place called Canada. Let's try that. <laughs> my grandparents, yes. Oh, your grandparents. Was yeah. it really that arbitrary? No, this is my own fantasy. The United States tightened its immigration policies in 1924. All of my grandparents ended up in Canada around 1926. So I'm just guessing that the rest of their families did end up in New York and Montreal was kind of a second choice. But for me, I'm glad they ended up there instead of, say, Argentina or South Africa or Palestine, uh, which would have led to a much more challenging childhood for me. Leonard Cohen also grew up in the community you grew up in, and I understand that your mother knew him. There is a photograph of my mother at age 14 towering over a 13-year-old Leonard Cohen at the uh, Shar Hashemayim Synagogue in Montreal, where they were both in the confirmation class. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so did you ever meet him, or was that just a childhood I, experience of your mom? Yeah, it was a childhood experience of my mom. I never met him. I managed, And he was very big when I was a teenager. Songs of Leonard Cohen came out, and we all would play Suzanne and Hey, That's No Way to Say Goodbye. Then he kind of you know fell out of popularity and suddenly became hip just in the last 10 years of his life. And I was fortunate enough to go to a concert of his in Boston, which was spectacular, uh, even though at the time he was pushing 80. Initially, your mother was a homemaker through the 1950s and 60s. But during the 70s, she got a master's degree in counseling and then later became vice principal of a high school in Montreal. Your dad had a law degree, but for much of his life, he worked as a sales representative and a landlord and owned real estate in Florida. All that being said, you've said that the biggest influence they had on you was at the moment of conception. <laughs> yes. This so is, why, why is that, Stephen? You know, in intellectual life, we, it's almost taboo to talk about the influence of genetics. Uh, and that, that was the subject of my book, The Blank Slate. That, yes. That very taboo, the taboo on human nature. But the evidence from the subfield of psychology called behavioral genetics shows that genes matter. 
they make much more of a difference to the formation of a personality and intellect than parenting. It doesn't mean that everything is in the genes because the cultural environment matters, your peer group, the uh, neighborhood and community that you grow up in. And there's a, a huge factor of uh, random chance, luck of the draw, influences that are neither genetic nor familial. But the role of parenting uh, itself turns out to have very little influence on the shaping of the person. Now, of course, parents have an enormous impact on the quality of childhood, whether your childhood is happy or, or miserable. And of course, parenting being a human relationship, it also has an influence on the relationship that you have with your parents for the rest of your lives. But the idea of children as little balls of clay that their parents shape turns out not to be true. So do you think that the effects of our parents on our lives is overrated? It is overrated. I do. Do you think that parents have ultimately a big effect on how you respond to things? So, for example, you could have the same child in two different families, one treated one way, one treated another way, but the response to the way that they're treated because of our genes might be the same? It could be, yes. And, and we, it's also easy, easy to forget that children affect parenting. It's not just that parenting affects children, but how you deal with a child very much depends on whether it's a rambunctious child or a placid one, a sociable one or a retiring one. So a lot of the effects that we attribute to parenting may just be the way parents have to deal with the, the children as they pop out of the womb. How much effect do genes have on our intellect or our temperament versus sheer chance? If you look at the variation among people within a culture, you know, Lisa versus Sally, Sam versus Adam, I think about the same, maybe about 50% each. Really? Yeah. So here's a, a concrete way to put it. Okay. Consider identical twins and not the exotic case of the identical twins separated at birth, which doesn't happen very often. When it does, scientists are fascinated because you've got same genes, different environment. So it's a great thing to study. But, but let's put that aside. Just think about identical twins that you know. So they have the same genomes. They are brought up in the same family, the same parents, same older sibs, same younger sibs, same school, same neighborhood. So the heredity is the same and their environment is almost the same, very close to being the same. So therefore, they should be completely indistinguishable, right? Well, if you know any identical twins, you know, no, they're not completely indistinguishable. They're highly correlated. They're much more similar than you know, two people plucked off the street or even two fraternal siblings. But they have distinct personalities. They follow different paths in life. How can that happen if we're shaped by our genes and our environment and they have the same genes and the same environment, but still they end up not exactly the same? There has to be a big role for sheer chance, the luck of the draw, both in the way your brain develops because the genes can shape brain development, but they can't control it down to the last connection, um, and to random uh, events that unfold as you live your life that may have a big cumulative effect that it's very hard to keep track of moment by moment. Which twin gets the top bunk bed? Which Who gets the bottom bunk bed? Did one of them inhale a virus and get a cold and stay home from school and the other one went to school that day? Did one of them get chased by a dog? None of these are formative, but they add up to a different lifeline for each individual. And all of these developmental, neurological, individual idiosyncratic events seem to play a huge effect in shaping the person about the same size as the effect of the genes. You've stated that you think a lot of what makes us what we are, we don't have any conscious access to. 
Is there any way to understand this better? Will there always be some part of our consciousness, aside from how it evolved, that we'll never be able to understand? I suspect there will be, not because there's anything mystical or uncanny or paranormal, but we're not going to ever, I suspect, have a instrument powerful enough to trace out every last connection of every last neuron in the 100 trillion synapses in the human brain, nor is any graduate student going to scamper along behind a little baby with a clipboard, uh, <laughs> <laughs> keeping track of everything that happens oh, to Oh, darn. Why can't we find somebody that's willing to do that? <laughs> I want so badly to understand it. So we're never, I don't think we understand it perfectly, but we, I think we'll know more and more. Your parents wanted you to become a psychiatrist, given your interest in the human mind, and given their assumption that any smart, responsible young person would go into medicine. What made you decide to defy their wishes and study cognitive psychology? Yes. Well, this was in the um, 1970s after the academic bubble crashed. Because in the late 50s, after Sputnik, huge expansion of the university system, anyone with a PhD could just waltz into a job. Mm, uh, then they then, were riding cabs at that point, Exactly. Right? And so there are articles <laughs> in the New York Times magazine about PhDs in philosophy, driving cabs and working in sheriff's office. So my you know, parents were they were you know, justifiably concerned. And my, my mother's uh, suggestion was, well, look, if you are a psychiatrist, you get to do everything you can do as a psychologist, plus you have a kind of stable income seeing patients. But I, I really did not want to take out four years of my life to go to medical school to study something that wasn't my primary interest. And I didn't really have an interest in seeing psychiatric patients. So I took my chances. Fortunately, I chose a field, cognitive psychology, which was in a growth phase within universities. A lot of psychology departments wanted to expand in cognitive psychology. And so I, I did not have a problem getting a, a job as an assistant professor. Were your parents comforted by the notion that you were at least getting your PhD from Harvard University? <laughs> yes, that's their, their misgivings were put to rest uh, a long time ago, yeah. Your thesis was on visual imagery and the ability to visualize objects in the mind's eye. You then started your career working in the visual realm as well as with language, but ultimately chose to focus on working with language. Why? Yes, I was interested in how we visualize three-dimensional objects and scenes because clearly in, in design but in many other fields like organic chemistry, even in fiction where you have to visualize plots unfolding in three-dimensional space, you have to have the ability to imagine how objects and people arrange themselves in 3D space. Uh, uh, and there was a, something of a paradox that intrigued me that while Clearly, we imagine a three-dimensional world. We don't imagine things that are you know, flat as pancakes. But imagery always seemed to be from a vantage point. That is, whenever you close your eyes and imagine something, there is perspective in it. If you imagine standing between a pair of railroad tracks, for example, you kind of see them in your mind's eye converging to the horizon. Now, of course, the railroad tracks in reality are parallel, otherwise the train would derail. But the projection that we experience on our retinas when we physically see something seems to be replicated in the mind's eye in our, our visual memories and our visual manipulation. Likewise, when you imagine a, uh, a globe or a box or a face, you imagine it from uh, one surface, only the visible surface. You don't have x-ray vision in your imagery and you have to mentally turn it around for new surfaces to come into view. The challenge that I faced was what's going on in the brain that allows 
visual images to simultaneously represent the third dimension, but always be specific to a vantage point? And how do we bring in new information as we visualize ourselves exploring a scene or manipulating an object? So that was the that was the puzzle that engaged me. Why did you abandon that line of work? What happened was I, at the same time, as a graduate student, I was interested in how children learn their first language, their mother tongue. And I started off as kind of a theoretician, namely, how is this even possible? You've got a, a baby who doesn't know whether uh, he's going to end up speaking Swahili or Japanese or English or Yiddish. Uh, the brain is completely unprepared for any particular language. Child hears all this noise coming out of his parents' mouths for a couple of years. And in a, within a couple of years, the child is producing his or her own sentences, brand new sentences that aren't just memorizing what they heard before. What's the algorithm in the child's brain that goes from one to the other, that goes from speech from parents to an ability to speak and understand? And construct. And construct, crucially to, to construct. And I started off just looking at computer simulations from artificial intelligence, from math models, just as how is this problem even solvable? I mean, what could allow a child to acquire a language? And then I started to test these ideas by bringing kids into, uh, into the lab or by analyzing transcripts of their speech. What happened was that my field seemed to be more interested in my work in language acquisition than in visual cognition. Visual cognition was a more crowded field. There were other people who were doing the work better than I was. But the world was kind of telling me that it found the work in language more uh, interesting. And so I gravitated toward it and uh, it, it took over my research life. In your first book, The Language Instinct, How the Mind Creates Language, you wrote this. You and I belong to a species with a remarkable ability. We can shape events in each other's brains with exquisite precision. I'm not referring to telepathy or mind control or other obsessions of fringe science. Even in the depictions of believers, these are blunt instruments compared to an ability that is uncontroversially present in every one of us. That ability is language. Simply by making noises with our mouths, we can reliably cause precise new combinations of ideas to arise in each other's minds. The ability comes so naturally that we are apt to forget what a miracle it is. Stephen, how did we become a species that is capable of such a sophisticated way of communicating? I think the first step in studying language is to remind ourselves of what a near-miraculous gift it is. And to those of you who are listening to this podcast, you're uh, a proof because you're you know, washing your dishes or, or right. driving or, 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 or jogging. It's all language. And, and coming into your ears is, but it's clearly not just any old noises. You're, <laughs> you're interpreting those noises uh, in this particular discussion to talk about that ability itself, language. Uh, so we don't really know how language evolved in the human species because all of the intermediate stages are extinct between a chimp who can't talk and a human who can. And there's much we don't know. It must have unfolded over hundreds of thousands of years. It probably evolved in concert with other unusual traits of Homo sapiens. We're unusually sociable among species. We, we get along with people who aren't related to us, and we cooperate in large teams. And of course, we have a great deal of technological know-how. We, we make tools and clothing. And, and I suspect that these three abilities 
co-evolved, each one of them boosting the evolution of the other two. Because you're unlikely to evolve language unless you're on speaking terms with other people. That is, you're giving them tips that will help them. You're coordinating your behavior. So you've got to have some kind of social bond in the first place. But of course, language is a way to intensify social bonds because you can trade favors. I can do something for you now in exchange for something that you might not do for me for another few years. And that's that connects us together. And as a species, we depend so much on technologies that, uh, that we invent that aren't in the genes. They have to be passed along, how to make tools and artifacts, and language is a big boost to doing that. So I think that trilogy and a number of other things that make us kind of very weird primates, but I think all of them go together. I did a little trick with uh, one of the lines in the passage that I wrote. If you change the word language to the words graphic design, the sentence still very much holds up. Simply by using graphic design, we can reliably cause precise new combinations of ideas to arise in each other's minds. I thought that was quite interesting. Yes, and it's interesting to think of the trade-off between graphic communication and linguistic communication because each can do something that the other cannot. It's very hard to describe analog changes, continuous changes in words. And in fact, I'm a huge fan of data graphics. And in my last two books, each one of them has Quite a close lot to 100 data. graphs. Yeah. And, and I find that as a communications medium, it makes an enormous difference. If I say that uh, deaths in warfare have come down since 1946, people say, yeah, yeah. Then I show them a graph. It's like, a big oh delta. my God, it's a huge <laughs> delta. Exactly. And longevity and wealth. We're even seeing that air pollution has gone down. And it's not just that it has a bigger wallop emotionally. It's so you can track when the biggest changes occurred. Was there like a big drop that leveled off? Was it nothing happened for a while and then it fell off a cliff? All of which are very, very hard to communicate in words. But conversely, there's, there are many things that you can't communicate in graphs. Poetry. Or, or graphics. <laughs> uh, well, poetry or even just prose. Right. Uh, just A did B to C, but not D. Logical relationships, this or that, this not that, if this then that, uh, you cannot convey with pictures. I think we're even seeing in a lot of uh, journalistic media and in nonfiction books an increasing reliance on graphics as the software makes it easier to implement. And I think as the culture is getting more numerate, we realize that verbal descriptions only convey part of reality. Hence the popularity of emojis. So I think that's yet a third communication channel, which is distinct both from, say, graphics in terms of uh, charts and data and language. It's the emotional coloring of speech, which is yet another channel separate from either of those. And it is interesting that uh, emojis really do convey something that is very difficult to convey in words alone. You know, I, I wrote a book on writing style. Yes. And one of the things I had to deal with was the constant complaints that the language is deteriorating that uh, the kids today can't construct a grammatical sentence, they don't know no punctuation, they can't spell. Complaints, by the way, that you can trace back literally hundreds of years. Yes. They're saying the same thing in 1960 and in 1940 and in 1920 and 1900. But regarding emojis, I was very amused to read a pretty highfalutin style manual from the 1950s from an Oxford professor. And he's saying, you know, it's really 
a shame that we don't have a punctuation character that could convey that a sentence was intended ironically or in jest and ought not to be taken seriously. It would be really useful if we could have <laughs> such a character. And I thought, this guy is calling for the invention of the smiley face. Absolutely. The first the emoji. Wink. I was going to say the winky Or the wink. Yeah, that's face. right. <laughs> um, and so uh, now I think a lot of purists say, oh, it's the decline of the written word. People are using emojis. But back then, the Oxford professors were saying, you know, we could really use some emojis. You write this regarding change in general in Enlightenment now. People often confuse changes in themselves with changes in the times and changes in the times with moral and intellectual decline. This is a well-documented psychological phenomenon. Every generation thinks that the younger generation is dissolute, lazy, ignorant, and illiterate. There is a paper trail of professors complaining about the declining quality of their students that goes back at least 100 years. And you make a claim, a very, very, very powerful one, that this is not the case. (laughs) Why do we do this? Yes. People do confuse just change with deterioration, partly because any change makes your own skill set obsolete. So everything you've been working for all your life uh, and now the kids are using just when you learned how to use – um, Twitter, everyone's on Instagram. <laughs> it's like, oh, damn. <laughs> and that keeps happening and happening. So then we respond to that with dismay or with... People do respond with dismay. Um, also, there's a... Uh, Thomas Hobbes put it several hundred years ago, which itself shows that this is not a new phenomenon. He said, competition of praise inclined toward a reverence to antiquity, for men compete with the living, not with the dead. <laughs> that is, if you're saying what a mess current society is, you're kind of dissing all your rivals. You're saying, back in the good old days, they really knew how to write, they really knew how to run a society, and you're kind of putting down your contemporaries. So it's always a tempting thing for social critics who want to put themselves in a morally superior position. I think it's interesting. If you live long enough, you begin to hear back in the day so many times that you're not really even sure what day anybody's referring to. <laughs> That's right, yes. Yeah. Back, at, back in the peaceful 60s. Are exactly. you kidding? Yeah. What, were, what good old days. When the, the, the cities were in flames <laughs> <Right>. when, uh, <laughs> when we had a uh, segregationist run for president and win five states when war was raging in Vietnam exactly. and uh, thousands of Americans were being killed. Point out those days for us. You pose a question in the language instinct that I would like to ask you. If language is thinking, then where did it come from? Did it come from human minds interacting with one another? So I I don't think that language is thinking. And that's a major theme in uh, the language instinct, that as amazing as language is, it is not the same as thought. We don't think in the English language. I think we use snatches of language as memory aids, kind of a scratch pad. But we also think in imagery. We think in abstract thoughts that are not the same as strings of words, which is often why it's hard to write. Uh, writing does not simply consist of dictating the contents of your consciousness. Right. If you do that, it's, and no one will understand what you're talking about. It takes a lot of work to take abstract thoughts and to shape them into grammatical sentences. You also ask this question. If language were really thought, it would raise the question of where language would come from if it were incapable of thinking without language. So how did we think before there exactly. was language? No, exactly. <laughs> and in fact, going back to an earlier topic, uh, language development in children, part of my own theory as to how children develop language is that they aren't just cryptographers hearing you know, blah, 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 blah and trying to decode sequence of sounds. They hear language in context. 
They see their parents looking at things. They see the things their parents are looking at. They're constantly updating their own mental model of the world. They have a good hunch as to what their parents are probably referring to. And what they do is they juxtapose the sounds that they hear coming out of other people's mouths with their interpretation of the world, which is not itself language. It can't be. They haven't learned language yet. That's how they learn language. Likewise, language is always changing. We invent new words to label thoughts that we didn't have words for. We struggle to put our thoughts into, into words. And our nonverbal thinking overlaps with that of other species like chimpanzees who are pretty smart and chimps have a concept of objects and locations and cause and effect and other agents and their intentions rudimentary compared to ours, but they are um, clearly other animals can think. Um, and I think the, our thinking got more sophisticated in the course of evolution and language developed as an accompaniment to uh, a cognitive system which existed way before language came into the world. So you believe that language is an instinct? Yes. So that was the title of my first popular book, which I stole from Charles Darwin. He said, yes. man has an instinctive tendency to speak, as we see in the babble of our young children. But not to write. Very but different. Not to write. Yes. Clearly not to write. Writing is not instinctive. Right. Which is why I wrote another book, The Sense of Style, on, right. on how to write clearly. Where do our instincts come from? I think for ultimately from evolution, from the process of natural selection, which gives us the tools to survive in our environment. Let's talk about your brand new book. Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. What made you decide to write this particular book? In a way, it grew out of a book that I wrote in 2011 called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, which in turn was kind of a uh, – grew out of the blank slate, the modern denial of human nature. The common thread is human nature. What makes us tick? What kind of creatures are we? And in arguing in the blank slate that there is such a thing as human nature, that we're not blank slates that parents write on or, the, or society, I had to deal with the fact that a lot of aspects of human nature are, uh, are, are not so pleasant. We have jealousy. We have revenge. We have dominance. We have lust. We have um, selfishness. And I, I think there are reasons to believe that evolution programmed those into our brain. That leads to the question, well, geez, if, if, uh, does that mean that we're doomed to constant conflict and war and crime and uh, harassment and rape because you know, we can't help it? It's in the genes. Evolution made us do it. And at the time, I, I said, no, that doesn't follow because those nasty parts of human nature aren't the only parts. Evolution also gave us empathy and reason and a moral sense and self-control. And at any given historical period, how we actually behave depends on how strong our norms and our institutions and our values are compared to our, our unpleasant uh, urges and impulses. And that can change over time. And I, I even noted, well, in fact, if you look at history, you see obviously behavior isn't the same in every historical period. We've made some progress. We abolished slavery. The Soviet empire collapsed with uh, very little violence. Uh, rates of violent crime had gone down since the Middle Ages, a little factoid that I was aware of. And when I repeated these positive comments in a blog post, I started to get mail from historians and social scientists saying, did you know that rates of death and warfare have plummeted since 1946? Someone else said, did you know that rates of domestic violence are down? Someone else said, did you know that rates of child abuse are down? And these are 
people who didn't talk to each other, whose work was kind of buried in the academic journals. And I thought, oh my goodness, there seems to be a pattern here. In area after area, if you look at violence objectively, quantitatively, it's going down. That's a very different picture than the one you get from the headlines. I think since I, I'm privy to all of these different facts, they deserve to be between a pair of covers. And as a psychologist, what a challenge to try to explain them. How is it that with human nature, which changes very slowly, if at all, we've managed to change our behavior so dramatically? So that led to The Better Angels of Our Nature. The title was just waiting for me to steal. It was from Abraham Lincoln, but yes. I believe in a complex human nature. So the metaphor of the better angels of our nature suggests that that's not all there is to human nature, but it is an important part of human nature that we can encourage and clearly we have encouraged given the way all of these forms of violence have gone down over time. Then I realized that the story is even bigger than violence, that if you look at other measures of human well-being, such as how long we live, how many kids die in infancy, how many mothers die giving birth, how many people are illiterate, how much free time we have, how much time we spend on housework. All of these show improvement, and it adds up to a picture that really vindicates this somewhat old-fashioned notion of progress. We've made progress, and you wouldn't know it reading the papers. No, we'd think that civilization was doomed, which we'd is how I feel most days. Which is how we feel most days. So that's kind of a disconnect between reality and uh, the perception that we get from journalism and intellectual life that I thought deserved exploring. And again, it raised the question of what propelled this progress. It doesn't happen by magic. I don't think there's a mystical arc of justice. People did things. And you don't think made... that the arc is bending towards justice? Well, if it is, we have to explain why. Yeah, it's... and where where'd the arc come from? Who, you know? who, yeah, who put <laughs> the, the arc With the helium and the hydrogen and the arc. <laughs> exactly. No, that's exactly right. Uh, now, if you're a religious person, you could say, well, you know, God carved the ark, but then why did God let so many people kill each other for so long? Uh, that doesn't seem to be part of a particularly just cosmic plan. And I'm more likely to locate these changes in, in human behavior. And so that's what led me to the ideals of the Enlightenment, that the key idea is that if we increase our knowledge, if we understand how the world works, if we set the goal of making people better off, healthier, more knowledgeable, longer-lived, happier. Bit by bit, we can succeed. That was the Enlightenment dream. Uh, you could dismiss it as you know, starry-eyed and naive and uh, you know, it'll never work. But what the graphs tell us is it, it did work. It is working if we continue the project of trying to improve human welfare through human knowledge. You begin the book by recounting how over the years you've been asked some mighty strange questions. But there, on the first pages of this 500-plus page book, you reveal the most arresting question you have ever fielded after one of your talks. And I was wondering if you can share the question with our listeners and then tell us how you responded. Yes. So I, I gave a talk and during, in the course of the talk, it was based on the blank slate. I, I noted that the mind is the physiological activity of the brain and that uh, when the physiological activity of the brain uh, ceases, the person goes out of existence. You know, all attempts to try to communicate with the souls of the dead have failed. And this is just Sadly. Sta standard <laughs> neuroscience. Right. I mean, just the, we are what our brain does. And a student stood up and said, why should I live? Um, 
What an extraordinary question. What an extraordinary question. And she didn't, obviously, she she was not suicidal. She didn't mean it sarcastically. She was sincere. My guess was, and I uh, I think it's true, she had a traditional religious upbringing, which included the immortal soul. And this was a new idea uh, to her, and she really wanted to know. And and my policy in any case in a talk is there's no such thing as a stupid question. I always try to answer them sincerely and on the terms of the questioner. So the, the response that I put in the book was, undoubtedly more coherent and eloquent than what I actually said at the time. But I had the luxury of recreating it from memory. But I I reiterated what I think of as the ideals of the Enlightenment, that we are intelligent creatures, we're social creatures, we can learn, we can argue, we can debate. Each one of us has sources of pleasure and flourishing. We enjoy the beauty of the natural world. We enjoy the beauty of the cultural world. We bring up children. We enjoy the love of our, our family and, and our mates. And because there's nothing special about any of us, I can't claim that I deserve to flourish and you don't because I'm me and you're not. As soon as we start to get together, we're kind of committed to providing that flourishing for everyone else. Now, that's a reason to live to take advantage of the flourishing that our nature gives us and to ensure that that's available to as many people as possible. You state that the notion of applying reason and sympathy to enhance human flourishing may seem obvious, trite, and old-fashioned. Your words, not mine. But you wrote this book because you have come to realize that it is not. Is that based on the research that you've undertaken or is that something that you feel you can prove through observation and and just the sense of the longing that that humans have for something better. It's something that you can appreciate reading the papers or looking at history where people have spent enormous energy in pursuit of things other than human flourishing, such as the glory of the nation or the race or the faith uh, or the tribe. Many wars have been fought just to expand territory, to enhance the glory of uh, of an empire to prevent a province from from seceding. Many people believe that um, the lives of the mass of humanity are not worth living, that humanity flourishes only if there are heroic uh, supermen who achieve feats of artistic greatness and that everyone else can go to hell. So there really are alternatives. I mean, it sounds like, oh, yeah, human flourishing, you know, everyone agrees with that. But no, everyone doesn't. You include the original definition of enlightenment in your book, and I was shocked when I read it. You state that it's the original definition of enlightenment was humankind's emergence from its self-incurred immaturity. Yeah, that's from Immanuel Kant in his essay, What is Enlightenment? And by it, he meant the kind of childlike acceptance of what authorities tell you. And he argued in, the, in this, this short essay, which is kind of the, one of the founding documents of the Enlightenment. That, the 1784 uh, that, essay? Is that the one you're right. talking about? That's right. Yes, okay. exactly. Right. And that, um, that no, really, because we have the power of reason, we ought to question um, authority and received wisdom and uh, con- conventional understanding and uh, just ask, try to understand. And our understanding is never going to be complete. What our predecessors hand down to us undoubtedly is going to have some errors and we should think and reason and argue and debate and and you shouldn't repress speech, you shouldn't enforce dogmas, you should constantly be trying to understand the world. It's a very optimistic view. Well, it is. And that's why after introducing the ideals of the Enlightenment, I said, well, how does Enlightenment think actually work out in the end? <laughs> and the answer then I plot in graphs. Yes. And that led to uh, that the belief in progress, which many people think of as you know, idealistic and old-fashioned. Or they're afraid of it. Or they're afraid of it. But it's an empirical hypothesis. 
everyone agrees that it's better to live than to die. Uh, almost everyone. It's better to be healthy than, than to be sick. It's better to be literate than to be illiterate and ignorant. Okay, let's measure these things over time. Have they increased since the Enlightenment? And the answer is in every case they have. I'd like to read this passage to you and ask you one question about it. Here it goes. Rather than trying to shape human nature, the Enlightenment hope for progress was concentrated on human institutions, human-made systems like governments, laws, schools, markets, and international bodies are a natural target for the application of reason to human betterment. In this way of thinking, government is not a divine fiat terrain, a synonym for society, or an avatar for the national, religious, or racial soul. It is a human invention tacitly agreed to in a social contract designed to enhance the welfare of citizens by coordinating their behavior and discouraging selfish acts that may be tempting to every individual but leave everyone worse off. As the most famous product of the Enlightenment, the Declaration of Independence put it, in order to secure the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, governments are instituted among people deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Stephen, in your estimation, how did we end up here facing the current political situation we are in in the United States? Well, I think the ideals of the Enlightenment, which really shaped the uh, American nation. I'm a Canadian. I'm an immigrant. And like many immigrants, I, I love my adopted country, foremost because the United States, above all, was a product of the Enlightenment, that the um, passage that you just read from the Declaration of Independence was a perfect Enlightenment statement of the rationale for government. Government isn't there to perpetuate uh, rulers. It's there to allow the people in the society to flourish. Moreover, what makes a nation is not an ethnicity, it's not a race, it's not a creed, it's a social contract among people who want to live the richest lives and government is necessary to do it because you can't thrive in a state of anarchy. Now, that's, it's an abstract idea. Pushing back against this product of the human intellect, brilliant men and women like Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton are kind of our, our more primitive impulses, like tribalism, like authoritarianism, like the idea that our particular tribe is inherently worthy, ought to achieve greatness, ought to outclass and dominate other tribes, ought to be led by a powerful leader who is virtuous and wise and good, like the people. These are, I think, deeply rooted in human nature. I think they're mistakes. Uh, I think the whole American experiment was to come up with a better rationale for government than a, uh, a strong monarch leading a noble ethnic group or race. And that's what makes the United States different from a lot of other countries that were based on originally on race and ethnicity. But the battle is always there. This is an intellectual construct. I think it's a good intellectual construct. But human nature pushes back. Do you believe that we can overcome this moment? I think we can because I think we have in the past because a lot of measures of human conflict have gone down. Europe, which was just torn apart by wars literally for centuries, Western Europe, France and Germany constantly at each other's throats. Then after 1945, it stopped. I mean, Western Europe just said – uh, let's not fight any wars anymore. And, and, they, and they did. They, they, they didn't fight any wars anymore in Western Europe. It's almost obvious now. Well, yeah, of course. Who would think France or Germany would ever go to war against each other? But my goodness, for literally for centuries, that's all they did. 
even Canada and the United States, my, my country of birth and my uh, adopted country, you, know, you go to the border and you see these tourist attractions, which are these forts and cannons from a time when the United States and Canada fought wars against each other, the War of 1812. So yeah, it's not as if we ever lose the impulse to of competition, of dominance, of revenge, of um, ethnocentrism, but our institutions can be a bulwark against them. You state that the ideals of the Enlightenment are products of human reason, but they always struggle with other strands of human nature. Loyalty to tribe, deference to authority, magical thinking. I'm very, very guilty of that one. The blaming of misfortune on evildoers. Have you found that one strand is stronger than another? Is bad stronger or weaker than good? I think it very much depends on the uh, historical time and place and on the strength of the institutions that are in place. When government breaks down and people are left in a state of anarchy, then you do get the, the worst of human nature. You tend to get high rates of violence. You get the abduction and rape of women. You get a constant plotting of revenge or of preemptive attacks. Let's do it to them before they do it to us. You get kind of Lord of the Flies type scenarios. But if you have a strong civil society under the umbrella of stable institutions like schools, like rule of law, court system – institutions of business, then that tends to allow people to trust one another more. They're not constantly thinking, how can I screw him before he screws me? And it can be a uh, virtuous circle. And su successful societies like those of Northern and Western Europe seem to do pretty well. Uh, the United States is by many measures a bit of a laggard in terms of successful liberal democracies. By a lot of measures, we don't measure up that well to you know, Denmark and France and Norway and Germany. We have higher rates of crime and of lower lifespan, higher infant mortality, more drug abuse. Which is shocking. Which is kind of shocking considering how rich we are. Yeah. So the United States, you know, it, it's a pretty, still a pretty good place to live uh, as far as countries go across the world. But we're, we're kind of underachievers given how rich we are. You wrote this in the chapter on happiness. Today's Americans are not one and a half times happier than they were 50 years ago, as they would be if happiness tracked income, or a third happier if it tracked education, or even an eighth happier if it tracked longevity. People seem to bitch, moan, whine, carp, and vetch as much as ever, and the proportion of Americans who tell pollsters that they are happy has remained steady for decades. Why is that the case? Yes, there is a paradox about the United States and it actually led to a misconception among psychologists and economists in general. Namely, life has gotten objectively so much better. Yeah. You know, we live longer, we're richer and uh, you know, we're, we're well fed. Uh, why are we happier? <laughs> and, and the answer is most countries are. The United States is an exception in that the American level of happiness has remained pretty constant since the late 1940s. And that's not typical of Western nations. Most Western nations have gotten uh, happier. And most nations in general get happier as they get richer. United States not possibly in part because of inequality, because a lot of the gains have been enjoyed much more by those at the top than those at the bottom. That may be one possible explanation. Another may be that the United States, its fortunes have in some ways have sunk since the heyday of the 1950s when Everything seemed great. You know, Yankee ingenuity gave us the atomic bomb. 
Women, we went to the moon. <laughs> we, we went to the moon, and, and you know, women were happy consumers and housewives, and Negroes knew their place, and America had a mission to spread democracy across the world. So we started at a high point of self-confidence in the 1950s when it just seemed like it was going to be the American century. Well, then there was you know, Vietnam and Watergate and recognition of poverty and uh, the nuclear arms race. And there's this great disillusionment in the United States. And it may be that we had kind of farther to fall in terms of our national self-concept. How is it possible to measure happiness? Is it just asking somebody, how happy are you on a scale of 1 to 10? That, that's, that's the main method, yeah. I mean, it sounds kind of dumb. But on the other hand, uh, what better measure can there be? Who, who could be a better expert? Now, of course, if you're a social scientist, you can't just take it on face value. And in fact, self-reports of happiness do correlate with other measures that we would think are, are other ways of measuring happiness, like how happy do your friends and family think you are? What parts of the brain are active? Are they the same parts of the brain that light up when you see you know, kittens, just <laughs> kittens? If people say they're happier, are they less likely to see a clinical psychologist for depression? Uh, so that you always try when you're a social scientist to kind of triangulate your measures to make sure they really are measures of what you think they are. And uh, self-reported happiness turns out to be surprisingly good. I mean the other way to ask people is if you imagine the worst possible life for yourself and the best possible life, kind of as a ladder with 10 rungs, uh, what rung do you think you are? Now, a good life, bad life isn't identical to happiness because there are some things that don't necessarily make you happy but you feel make for a, a more valuable life. Having children. Having children makes people less happy. I mean, parents, parents aren't because, you know, kids are a pain in the neck. The happiness goes down but very few people regret it and they think that they've lived a good life if they've brought up children. There's a really remarkable passage in the book about this specific thing, about sort of what we perceive as being happy or what we perceive as being purposeful. And I'd like to read that and, and then ask you a couple of questions about it. You state, people who lead happy but not necessarily meaningful lives have all their needs satisfied. They're healthy, they have enough money, and feel good a lot of the time. People who lead meaningful lives may enjoy none of these boons. Happy people live in the present. Those with meaningful lives have a narrative about their past and a plan for the future. Those with happy but meaningless lives are takers and beneficiaries. Those with meaningful but unhappy lives are givers and benefactors. Parents get meaning from their children, but not necessarily happiness. Time spent with friends makes a life happier. Time spent with loved ones makes it more meaningful. Stress, worry, arguments, challenges, and struggles make a life unhappier, but more meaningful. It's not that people with meaningful lives masochistically go looking for trouble, but that they pursue ambitious goals. Finally, meaning is about expressing rather than satisfying the self. It is enhanced by activities that define the person and build a reputation. Yes, and that, that's uh, to give credit where it's due. It's based in part on the work of a psychologist named Roy Baumeister who asked people the, you know, it sounds like a kind of a stupid question, how happy are you? But he also asked people, how meaningful do you think your life is? Again, you think, oh my God, that's, I mean, what, what a crazy question to ask people. Well, a lot of but, people superimpose those over each other, happiness and meaning. They do. And in fact, they are correlated. On average, people who live more meaningful lives are happier, but only on average, because there are some people who say, my life is super meaningful, I'm not so happy, or vice versa. And so, 
what Baumeister did was he looked at what differentiates them to the extent that your happiness is not completely predicted by the meaningfulness of your life, what accounts for the discrepancy. And so this list of uh, factors such as time spent with family, uh, children, a narrative of your past, plan for the future, ambitious plans that might leave you frustrated are all components that push you more toward meaningfulness, although maybe not toward uh, happiness. How much of happiness is dependent or impacted by the hedonic treadmill? Yes, the hedonic treadmill was a theory in psychology in part based on the finding that Americans had not gotten happier even as uh, as they got richer, that we kind of adapt to our circumstances the way the eye adapts to light. That you know, when you're inside, you know, you see things perfectly well. You step outside for a second, you're kind of blinded by the light, and then you kind of adapt, uh, or vice versa. You go into a, a dark movie theater. So the idea is that good things happen, and uh, you're happy for a little while, and then you kind of settle back to your baseline. Uh, you suffer a misfortune, and you're sad, but then you, you know, time heals all wounds, and you go back to, to normal. That set point. The set point, yeah. And the set point determined, like, like a lot of things, in, in large part, but not completely by genetics. So there's, there's some truth to that, but it turns out to be an exaggeration that people, their happiness can change over their lives as a result of events like, like being married, having, uh, like moving to a richer country. That winning the lottery, contrary to an earlier understanding, it used to be thought that winning the lottery doesn't leave you any happier in the long run. Eh, it turns out it kind of does make you happier. <laughs> <laughs> kind of glad to hear that. <laughs> I, I guess. I mean, there is a kind of... <laughs> kind of feels like, wow, if that doesn't make you happy, what will? <laughs> yes, right. Well, there is a kind of uh, tragic, kind of moralistic view that uh, everything that we, almost maybe a Buddhist view, that all our striving is for naught. It doesn't make you any happier in the long run. And the earlier finding that lottery winners were no happier, turns out to be false, kind of fit into that narrative that all of our striving after wealth and and comfort and so on is for naught. It turns out it's not for naught. I mean, it's not the only thing. And and a lot of of us make choices that leave us less happy but more fulfilled. I mean, I think we all do. But still, we have to acknowledge that when things go well, you really do end up happier. Ultimately, at the end of your remarkable book, I'm left with a sense of hope and optimism. And it's something that I think is a rare thing to feel these days. In the final chapter of Enlightenment Now, you state that history confirms that when diverse cultures have to find common ground, they converge towards humanism. Is it possible to speed up this process? I sure hope so. And I do think that greater mobility, greater communication, greater education will tend to push in that direction. To those who say, well, every culture is different, you, uh, every culture has its own unique values and norms and you can't impose one culture's values on another, you know, I don't think that's really true because we all are human beings. We all want to be healthy. We all want to see our children grow up healthy. Uh, we, we don't want to be starved. Uh, we don't want to be ignorant. And as a matter of fact, when people from diverse cultures are thrown together and given the challenge, okay, you guys got to get along. What are you going to come up with? They actually do come up with stuff. We've got the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was signed by a majority of the world's countries in the late 1940s, Muslim and Christian, Western and Eastern, and thrown together and said, what do you come up with? They came up with a pretty long list, uh, like people should be able to express their opinions. People have a right to an education. People have a right to uh, respite from work. People have the right to their culture. Uh, The list was pretty long. More recently, 
the United Nations came up with uh, sustainable development goals. What do we want to accomplish in the next 15 years? And it actually wasn't that hard to come up with a list, like we should eliminate disease, like we should have education for girls, like we should reduce violence against women, like we should clean up the environment, like we could deal with climate change. It actually isn't that hard to come find agreement if you are forced to set aside your parochial cultural norms and traditions and explore your common humanity. And that gives me great, great hope. I have one final question for you, Stephen. It actually is something that you wrote about very, very early on in your career. It's a, a bit of a um, a timeless question, I guess. <laughs> I'm hoping it'll clear up a debate I'm having with a close friend. Um, what is the plural of Walkman? <laughs> I wrote an entire book on irregular past tenses <laughs> and plurals. And uh, a lot of people are not sure Walkman doesn't sound quite right. And so Walkmans? I, Walkmans. I, I, would, I would actually go closer to Walkmans for reasons that I explain in my book, Words and Rules, and that, which also has explanations of why it's the Toronto Maple Leafs instead of Maple Leaves, why you say someone flied out to center field instead of flew out, all of those little conundrums of language. Yet another remarkable book by Stephen Pinker. Stephen, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. And thank you for helping us understand the world we're living in a lot better. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. To find out more about Stephen Pinker, go to stephenpinker.com. Stephen Pinker's remarkable new book is titled Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. 